Hey everybody and welcome back to Brim. This is incredibly the season finale of our first season of Brim Labs and I couldn't imagine a better way to wrap things up than to speak with an incredible organization named Block Power and their chief revenue officer Glenn Schatz. I really hope everyone enjoys and once again thank you so much for for following along and and being a part of this journey. Look forward for a couple more details in the summer about what's coming next. But first, here's Glenn. Awesome. All right, well, today we have a very special guest with us, um, Glenn Schatz. And Glenn is the Chief Revenue Officer at Block Power, which is a group that I've been following for a long time. Um, you know, in the first, I think I showed you this, Glenn, when we were in person, but the first ever one pager of Brim uh, actually included a little blurb about Block Power and all of your work. Um, I definitely look up to, to everything you guys are doing, but thanks so much for being here. And how are you doing today? Yeah, my, my pleasure and uh, good to talk to you again. Uh, doing well. Uh, things are busy as always at Block Power. So, but um, you know, love what you're doing with with these podcasts and with Brim. So happy to to make some time today to talk. Really appreciate that. And I guess for just a little bit of background, and there's um, there's a lot of praise that I could give Block Power, but I'll just name a few things. Um, you know, Fast Company just ranked y'all number four most innovative company in the world this year. Um, you're on CNBC's. Uh, top, top 50 list of disruptors, Time Magazine's top 100 most influential companies. Mm -hmm. The list goes on. You've raised from Microsoft's Climate Innovation Fund, Amazon's Climate Fund. Um, but in addition to some of the big names, you've also been able to raise a lot of really cool crowdfunding campaigns um, and been working with green banks. So there's a lot to get into on all of that, but the accolades are there for, for all the right reasons. Um, but Glenn, if you don't mind starting us off, um, can you tell us a little bit about you and, and your background? Um, and then we can get a little bit more into all the great work that, that Block Power is doing. Sure. Um, so I was uh, born in uh, Taipei, Taiwan. Uh, my mom is Taiwanese. My, my father is from, from Brooklyn, New York, uh, Brownsville, to be more precise. Um, so I guess working for Block Power, which is based in Brooklyn, is a uh, going back to my roots. Um, I moved to the U.S. when I was young. Uh, grew up in Tucson, Arizona, um, all the way through high school with a six-month uh, foray off to D.C. where I was a congressional page, which was a really cool experience uh, my junior year of, of high school. Um, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, uh, my, you know, my, my dad told me in middle school if I didn't get a scholarship to college, I probably was either not going or paying for myself. So I very, tried very hard to figure out how to how to pay for school, um, looked at uh, the military as an option, so to apply to some ROTC programs as well as the Naval Academy. Um, I, I also wanted to play football in college, so uh, ended up uh, getting recruited and going to the Naval Academy for, for school. Um, which was uh, horrible while I was there, but I'm glad I went. Uh, it provided me a lot of good opportunities afterwards. Um, uh, did grad school right after, and then uh, was a submariner for a few years after that. So served on, on boats out of uh, Norfolk, uh, Virginia, and then deployed um, on four other submarines. So a couple of ballistic missile submarines and uh, one fast attack submarine. Um, when I left the boat, 
uh, I had the opportunity to come back to the Naval Academy to teach. So I taught in the poli-sci department, um, the intro American government class that all, all freshmen or, or plebes are required to take, which was a really cool experience, um, especially because mm -hmm. of how much it mattered to them, even though they didn't really know it, how much, how much the constitution and, and the government and all of those norms matter to future military officers. And then also my, my personal interest, which was in energy policy, and energy security, there was no course uh, uh, on that at the Naval Academy. So I put one together. I was able to meld some of my personal interests with my professional requirements there. Uh, so taught this course on energy policy and security for a few years, had a chance to, to work with a couple of VCs on uh, trying to define the true cost of, of fossil fuels. Um, so this was a project that I did where try to quantify what the embedded costs were in a gallon of gasoline, an MMBTU of natural gas or a kilowatt hour of, of, energy, of electricity. And when I was doing that project, learned a lot more about the venture world, the clean tech in general, energy efficiency, and really saw energy efficiency as a place that uh, had a lot of potential. This was in the late 2000s. And so it was post the collapse of Waxman-Markey, uh, but, but there were still a lot on the table um, in terms of what investments could be made in different parts of the um, efficiency space. So I started a company with a couple of friends of mine to tackle uh, energy efficiency in, uh, in small buildings in the DC area. Uh, so we did that for a couple of years, focused mostly on small commercial and, and residential energy efficiency. Uh, and then uh, after a few years, familiar. <laughs> sorry, what, what was that? Sounds familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, uh, I mean, I love the built environment. I, I, uh, I like urban spaces. I like the interaction of people and buildings. And so I've always been drawn to, uh, to buildings in general, but, but tying it together with uh, what I viewed as a, you know, both a security and, a, and, a, um, you know, a global policy challenge with, um, with mm -hmm. carbon emissions was, was, you know, important as well. And then I tried to expand what I was doing there to a bigger scale, going to work for the Department of Energy, where I led the small commercial buildings portfolio. And, and that's actually where I ran into Danelle and Block Power for the first right. time. Um, so this was in 2013. Um, Block Power was just getting started. Danelle had this uh, crazy idea to do crowdfunding to, uh, to try to serve houses of worship in low-income areas. Um, and we thought it was really cool at DOE. It was a, a way to, uh, to try to uh, address energy efficiency in, in buildings that didn't normally get a lot of attention. <clears throat> and so we funded Block Power with a grant to do some of this work. And, uh, and so that was uh, the first time I got to see Danelle's vision. And, and so I left the Department of Energy uh, about a year after that uh, to go back to um, you know, a startup to, in, in the tech space. Um, and then a couple of years ago, when Black Power was raising their Series A, or our Series A, I, I reached out to Danelle to congratulate him. And he asked me if I wanted to come join, join the party. So I, I did, uh, excited to get back into the, uh, the building space, as well as to be part of the innovative model that I saw for the first time you know, that, that many years ago uh, that he start, when he started Black Power. Awesome. That's a great story, sort of uh, full circle there. Um, and you're still on, on the Navy front. You're still in the reserves, right? Did I? I, I, I am. I have a couple more years left until I can retire from the reserves. So 
<laughs> I, uh, I, in the reserves, I've mostly supported um, submarine squadron watch floors. I had a chance which was, uh, to, to be a liaison between South American diesel submarines and, and U.S. submarines when they would come up for exercises. So that was pretty cool. And, and now I currently support the Selective Service, which is the uh, organization that would oversee a draft if it ever happened. Cool. Well, um, it's a really awesome story. And, uh, you know, I, I think sort of changing gears into, you know, to block power and to diving in a little bit deeper. Um, you know, I've heard, especially in the last year or so, Danello sort of using this tagline of, you know, we want to change buildings into Teslas, right? But um, there's a lot that goes into that. It's yep. a very cool conceptual idea. But one of the reasons why I love block power is that, you know, the accolades that you guys are getting are because you're challenging the status quo from many different angles, right? From a socioeconomic angle, from a political angle, and really focused in on community change and um, community advocacy at all levels. Um, so I, at, at Brim, we talk about this intersection of climate innovation and justice, right? So I, I guess I, I'm hoping you can give us a little bit of color on how does that manifest at block power, right? And how does this concept of turning buildings into Teslas live at that, at that intersection? So what's really unique about block power uh, stems from Keith and Danelle's background. So they both uh, were trained as community organizers early in their careers, um, tra trained in politics and understand what it takes to mobilize communities to, to do stuff. Um, and I think the, the challenge that I see um, in the built environment and with building efficiency is that, you know, VCs want kind of an easy technology fix for a lot of things, right? They want to be able to have, uh, you know, a product and, and software that can stamp out change quickly with high margins. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, buildings aren't like that. Uh, buildings are, are messy, they're dirty, um, they are hard, uh, involves human labor, doing things that not everyone wants to do. And the other thing too is buildings are long-term investments for most people. And when you're tackling existing buildings, which is what Black Power primarily works on, um, we're talking about old systems. Uh, the buildings yep. that could use the most help tend to be the ones that have the fewest resources to do it. And so what really drew me to the work that Block Power was doing was, you know, there, there are other startups trying to electrify buildings, um, but a lot of them are approaching it from a traditional called corporate sense where it's like, what are the buildings that have the potential for the highest margin or the lowest customer acquisition cost? Right. Block Power is going after the hardest stuff. And, and sure, we're, we're trying to make the hardest stuff easier through software, through innovation, um, but we're not shying away from the, the challenging projects, the ones with the, the lower margins or the higher customer acquisition costs in neighborhoods that um, to traditionally get left behind. Um, one of the things that we looked at when I was at DOE was this technology adoption curve or how, how new technologies permeate into the market. Mm -hmm. And there are typically different phases of that. So there's the uh, you know, the R&D scale, pilot scale, and, and those are kind of, you know, usually, um, you know, small scale behind closed doors, just where the technology, you know, is, is really uh, developed. And then there's the early adopters. So that's the first people to buy the iPhones. It's the first people to drive the Teslas. In almost all cases, those early adopters are, are very well off. Um, and in a lot of cases, the adoption of technology early uh, actually accrues long-term benefits to those folks. 
and so you get this this cycle where the early adopters keep being the early adopters and keep getting those benefits. Uh, and this is especially true, you know, in, in things like 3D printing, uh, in, in software, where um, you know real economic value can come from learning how to, how to use these technologies. Um, and mm -hmm. so we look at technology adoption differently. And, and our uh, our outlook is that if we can get folks who are typically not early adopters to be early adopters, we can break the cycle and, and let the folks that are traditionally left behind by technology be part of the accrual of those benefits over time. And so we see it as opposed to this uh, typical curve where um, you know it plateaus and then the, uh, the, the late adopters or the stragglers as they're called are the ones that are, are forced to do things either through regulation or, or because you know, the, the old products are no longer on the market. And then uh, oftentimes it costs them more and they can't accrue the benefits of it late in the adoption curve to, to more of an adoption spiral to where communities that uh, are, are most impacted by climate change or communities where uh, that have a lot of human capital um, that's not invested in uh, can can take advantage of technologies early, and so that's why we put a lot of our our time and effort into bringing building electrification to these communities as opposed to the upper middle class suburbs where some of it's happening with um, you know other companies. Yeah, very cool and well said. Um, that that early adopter conversation it reminds me of one of the other pieces of what you guys are working on um, when it comes to actually in New York City. You guys have this incredible. Uh, broadband housing project right where you're actually hoping to bring internet connection to uh, really cheap and affordable internet connection to communities that don't have it um and people don't really you know from upper middle class communities you don't think about that all the time it's just sort of taken for granted that you know you're gonna have internet and that probably allows people to become early adopters in a way um on a lot of different scales. So uh, could you talk a little bit about the broadband um, initiative that you guys are running? And the other one that I hope you could touch on is this clean energy workforce development training program or um, for less of a mouthful, uh, civilian climate core, I think is how I've, I've seen it. Um, yep. Yeah, th those are two amazing programs that I was hoping you could share with people a little bit more about. Sure. The, um, the, you know, the broadband one's interesting because as you said, a lot of people take it for granted. Um, although I think it is becoming more and more known now, like where the gaps are. And, you know, there was, uh, as part of the, um, the you know, bipartisan infrastructure law, there's going to be a lot of investment in broadband, both in rural areas and urban areas. Um, but, you know, bro broadband is the, the fuel for the modern economy and, what we see too frequently is in, in low income areas, um, you know, they'll, they'll typically have some sort of connection. It's typically not, you know, super, super high speed, but then they'll have to share it amongst a lot of different people in a family. So if you think about the last couple of years, it's become pretty stark where you may have three, four or five people at home, you know, multiple people doing conference calls, uh, kids doing remote learning, you know, maybe uh, grandma wanting to watch uh, Netflix, right? So all of these things are, are happening yeah. all at the same time. And you can't really do that with like a 25, um, you know, megabit per second connection. Uh, and, and then also, um, you know, even if you have uh, a higher speed connection, you know, 
you know, the, the, the internet is sort of, it's interesting because the install capacity is uh, of, of any given area is, is fixed. And so it relies on people not using it to actually get your advertised speeds. And so if everyone is using it, then it can be degraded even further. And so um, one of the projects we worked on uh, in New York and, and we're doing elsewhere is to, to basically improve the speeds and access to internet in uh, affordable housing and public housing. And uh, this ties directly into the workforce development work we're doing. So the, uh, right. the Civilian Climate Corps, we were tasked through the New York Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice to uh, recruit up to a thousand uh, folks from three of the most uh, justice impacted areas and, and gun impacted areas in the city, uh, Brownsville, Brooklyn, um, Mott Haven, uh, Bronx and, and South Jamaica, Queens. And uh, one of the things that we found is, you know, we could train them to do a bunch of stuff, right? We trained them, we did construction training, OSHA training, life skills training, job skills training, um, but putting them all on re renewable energy or energy efficiency projects was challenging just because there aren't enough projects out there. Uh, for that volume of folks, but there are a lot of broadband projects out there. So we were able to put a lot of folks on on broadband projects in a lot of cases in the neighborhoods that they were um, from. So, um, you know, we like this model of trying to figure out ways to combine a lot of different policy goals together to be able to, uh, you know, leverage those public dollars as much as possible toward a bunch of different outcomes that are all aligned. And so, it's one of the unique things about block power is we try to figure out ways to break through some of the stovepipes that you see in local government and try to put yeah. together different pieces to be able to, to, you know, really um, amplify the benefits across all, all parts of that public funding. Awesome. Well, in, in a time where uh, the concept of climate justice or environmental justice can be uh, pretty wishy-washy, uh, I think, you know, both of these initiatives are wrapped up into your larger mission and and in some concrete ways that uh, hopefully people can learn from and, and take away as uh, great examples. Um, and you know, recently part of the success you know that I've seen, especially since the early days, 2014, 15, um, where it seems like y'all were working on more of like an individual basis um, with specific buildings or uh, maybe a specific neighborhood. Um, You've actually had a few cities come out and say, hey, we want to go 100% um, electric in our buildings through block power, right? So I think the first one that the first city that came out was Ithaca, New York. Um, and I think recently I just saw an announcement for, for Menlo Park out on the West Coast. Um, what does that mean <laughs> to go 100%? Yeah, it's a good question. So I think part of it is it takes it takes political will to do these mass scale electrification projects because you know there, the market transformation is needed to to succeed in it. I mean, right now, if 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 you had the money to pay for electrification of the whole city of Ithaca, which isn't huge, it's you know six thousand buildings or so, um, and um, you know. And you said, I, I want to do this all tomorrow. I have, you know, $2 billion I want to spend. You couldn't do that because there, there isn't enough labor. There's not enough contractors. There's not enough equipment. Uh, the grid probably couldn't handle it uh, right away. So there's a lot of this change that needs to happen. But if you have a city that's committing to, to doing this, you know, a stated goal over a long period of time, 
but with a with a pretty near-term target. And so like all of these like 2040, 2050 goals, I don't really pay a lot of attention to. But when you start talking about 2025, you know, yeah. to even 2030 on the tail on the on the tail end, like that, that stuff really matters. And so what the city of Ithaca and what, what Menlo Park are doing is they're laying out this commitment to, to, to electrify or decarbonize the whole city. And it doesn't necessarily mean they'll hit it, you know, hundred percent, but what it means is that they are saying, the political leaders of those cities are saying, we are going to do our best to break down a lot of the roadblocks that come with this to potentially invest some money in it. But there's a lot of uh, soft costs as well, like uh, permitting and, uh, um, you know, the, there's, there's others like inspections and all these other things that the city needs to invest, invest in to, to make sure this can happen quickly. Um, workforce development, you know, typically is a, is a public private partnership in a lot of these places. And so it's, um, it's getting rid of a lot of the barriers to electrification. And then what block power comes in and does is we, we try to help develop the program, uh, using best practices that we've learned in other markets, uh, provide financing, be a one-stop shop for citizens, uh, for contractors, for whoever wants to be part of this, uh, to make sure that, um, you know, this is not like a haphazard thing. It's, it's, a, it's, you know, well-managed and organized. So people are working toward the same goal. And in cases like these two cities, you know, we're basically extensions of the city in organizing these projects, um, more than an independent entity. Right. And I, I feel like that's one of the biggest things I've learned over the last you know, six, nine, 12 months is if you're going to do a project in a new place, you really have to work hard at involving the community that's there in the adoption and the planning and the execution. And I, um, the, I think you guys have this concept called uh, community advisory boards, which I, I spoke with Ian Harris back in December, way back in December, uh, but he was talking about or we got this Ithaca contract, it's great, but now we actually have to figure out you know, who are the leaders in the community, right? Who are the neighborhood advocates, um, some of the religious or community leaders, you know, people who work there, people who live there, and how do we bring them to the table? Um, you know, I, I think that's one of the really cool and important models that you guys have also laid out um, that if you land a contract with an Ithaca or a Menlo Park, you know, it's not just you guys saying, hey, we, here's our plan, do it. It's, hey, how can we actually hit the ground running with people who understand um, the place itself? So I yeah, love that's, that. That's super important. I mean, yeah. when you're looking at doing these large changes, um, it makes a lot of people nervous, even if long-term is going to benefit them. Um, and, you know, these are people's homes, Um you know, people's buildings. And so in, in a case like this, moving slow is fast, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. you could do these piecemeal approaches where you ignore the communities and do, you know, one-off buildings, but really what you want to do is you want everyone to feel like they're part of this and to be part of this, truly be part of it, um, to, to understand their objections. I mean, you know, there's sometimes a lot of concern around tenants' rights um, and how tenant protection laws can come into play and making sure people understand, you know, how it's gonna impact their utility bills and the value of their buildings and uh, health and comfort. Uh, there's a lot of different pieces of this. And, and we found that spending that time up front, uh, and, and this is where the organizing comes in that I mentioned earlier that Dale and Keith uh, really understand. Yeah. Um, yeah. Spending the time up front is important for the long-term success for, of any of these programs. 
And so, you know, it's, it's interesting because this is not something that it takes a certain type of investor to understand this. And so I know Danelle sometimes uh, complains on Twitter about VCs, but, but it's true. Like th this is not, you know, VCs look for pattern matching and this doesn't match a lot of their patterns, right? It, it, it's, it's slow initially. Um, it is, um, uh, takes some investment that isn't necessarily uh, directly toward uh, specific building sales. But our, our pitch to investors is that, you know, over time we're doing this work it's not like we're laying the groundwork for someone else to come in and then just take it. Like when you build the trust in a community, like it's real trust. And, 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 and hopefully over time we're well positioned in, in all of these communities to be the folks that are actually doing the work. And then those returns come back to our investors over a longer period of time. So it's not like we're doing this for, for free. You know, we, we are a for-profit company. We need to make money, but, right. um, but we have a very different sense of horizon and goals than maybe a lot of uh, traditional companies do. Yeah, well said. And I, um, I picked up on on Danelle's commentary on VCs, and it, uh, it's definitely, um, you know, I've been happy to hear it because I think a lot of a lot of VCs need to hear it as well. Um, but I think the last question um, on my mind, and thank you so much for for being so generous with your time, um, is around this future of of climate tech. Right. I mean, everyone's talking about it. You guys are technically a, a climate tech company, but you define yourselves in such different ways than just being, uh, you know, a new geothermal energy company. Right. There, there's such a, um, uh, a confluence of different factors from technology to community organizing um, that doesn't necessarily fit into a, v, a venture capital bucket. Right. So I, I guess I'm curious. Last question. Um, where do you see the space going from, I guess, the operating standpoint um, with folks starting up companies or nonprofits and then on the funding side as well to actually, you know, make these things happen? So I think, you know, you are starting to see a lot more private companies that have um, justice lenses on the work they do. Uh, we work with a number of other companies that are in um, K4 Capital portfolio, like, like Promise Pay, um, Acclima. Uh, bitwise that, that all have justice components of the work they do. And I think we, we see more and more of that now, but um, you know, in, in doing these sort of projects where it's not a traditional VC return on all of it, you know, it's not necessarily a private equity play. Um, we've been able to leverage uh, things like crowdfunding um, to provide equ some equity in projects. Um, that's a very interesting, um, especially for, um, for, for projects where, you know, they're community-based, people know what the money is going toward. Um, that's, that's helped us a little bit. But I do think that in a lot of these cases, it's gonna be a mix of, of all of the above in terms of fi uh, financing. So it's, we do have VCs that, to help us um, grow our, our operating base of our company. We have private equity to help um, with a certain tranche of the, of the funding stack for projects. Um, and, and we are, we have crowdfunding to fill in some gaps, you know, we are able to underwrite projects that other lenders aren't because of the flexibility of our different sources of capital. And we don't always use the same facilities for, for all projects. And so, um, one of the things that, that we try to do is figure out how to get to yes. And that can sometimes create some complications in the capital stack, but, um, we think it's important to, to figure out how to say yes to the types of buildings that, you know, 
would not necessarily get a yes if they were to go to their you know local bank um, for for a loan or a lease on these types of projects. And and because we understand the value of the equipment, we understand the the operations and maintenance of it. We're very confident that uh, these are not risky loans. Um, these are not risky leases. You know, we we look very carefully at debt service coverage ratios, and we, we make sure we're not putting any of our borrowers underwater. That's that's really important to us as well. Um, but we think that this is the type of thing where a little bit of creativity can go a long way. And we, we'd like to think that that's what we're providing um, to, to both sides of the market in this case. Great. Well, Glenn, thank you so much again for your time. Um, you know, you know this, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of block power and um, the impact that you guys are having. So I, I look forward to, to thinking about ways that, that we can collaborate moving forward. Um, and please, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put your information out um, into my small network um, for people to, to learn about uh, what y'all are working on, um, how they might be able to get involved, et cetera. Uh, but thank you. Thank you again. And, um, you know, enjoy your July 4th weekend. Awesome. Thanks, Thomas. Have Take a good care. weekend. Bye-bye.